Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it is simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK World Radio Japan, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and France 24. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. President Biden met with President Xi Jinping at the APEC conference in San Francisco, agreeing to keep lines of communication open, start discussions on artificial intelligence, and to crack down on the trade in fentanyl. Biden also added that the U.S. is committed to the one-China policy. She told Biden to stop arming Taiwan. Iran dismissed allegations of involvement in attacks on U.S. military stationed in Syria and Iraq. The Washington Post reported that the Ukrainian military played a key role in blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline last year. NHK Japan U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping have spoken face-to-face for the first time in a year. They say they've made progress on bilateral ties. That includes resuming high-level dialogue between their country's militaries and the leaders themselves. To keep the lines of communication open, including between President Xi and me, he and I agreed that each one of us could pick up the phone, call directly, and would be heard immediately. Biden says they agreed to open discussions around artificial intelligence and to set up a working group to crack down on the illegal drug trade. Biden also said he stressed the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. He added that the U.S. remains committed to the one-China policy. Before the meeting, she said it was in both countries' best interest to improve their relationship. As the most important bilateral relationship in the world, China and the U.S. should develop in a way that benefits our two peoples and fulfills our responsibility for human progress. China's state-run Xinhua News Agency also reports that she told Biden the U.S. should take real actions to show it does not support Taiwanese independence. The Chinese president reportedly told his U.S. counterpart to stop arming Taiwan and to help China's peaceful unification. Iran's foreign ministry is dismissing allegations that the country has been involved in re- repeated militant attacks on the U.S. military stationed in Syria and Iraq. Ministry spokesperson Nasa Kanani says what he calls resistance forces do not take orders from Iran and that Iran does not give them any instructions. He's also denying allegations that Iran is providing military support to militants in Lebanon and Yemen, which have joined Hamas in attacking Israel. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said on Sunday 
that the U.S. forces struck facilities in Syria used by Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps and Iran-affiliated groups. Austin says that was in response to attacks against U.S. personnel. The Pentagon says U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq were attacked 46 times between October 17th and November 9th, and that a total of 56 U.S. personnel were injured. Media reports say a colonel in Ukraine's Special Operations Forces played a key role in the bombing of the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines last year. The attacks in September caused massive gas leaks. The pipelines run under the Baltic Sea and link Russia and Germany. The Washington Post reported on Saturday that the colonel was the coordinator of the covert operation. It cited officials in Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe, as well as others familiar with the details. The report said he managed logistics and support for a six-person team that placed explosive charges on the pipelines. The colonel is currently being held in a jail in Kiev in an unrelated case. He has reportedly said he did not play any role in the sabotage. The report said other senior military officials gave him orders. It also said Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky may have been deliberately kept uninformed of the operation. Reuters has quoted a spokesperson for Ukraine's military as saying that he had no information about the report. Russian presidential spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Monday that traces of Ukraine in the sabotage are increasingly appearing in investigations and media reports. Those reports are from NHK World Radio Japan. On shortwave, they are now heard at 9 p.m. at 13.710 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. An interview with Omer Bartov, professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Omer discusses what genocide is and whether the world is witnessing the first stages of genocide and crimes against humanity on the part of the IDF and Hamas fighters now. He also rejects the notion that criticizing or protesting against the Israeli government is a form of anti-Semitism. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. My first guest tonight is Omar Bartov. He's a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University and the author of numerous books on war, genocide, and anti-Semitism. He has written on how the memory of the Holocaust informs contemporary Israeli politics. In an opinion piece for the New York Times last week entitled, What I Believe as a Historian of Genocide, Mr. Bartov wrote that we know from history that it is crucial to warn of the potential for genocide before it occurs rather than belatedly condemn it after it has taken place. I think we still have that time. You obviously advocate a proactive approach, stop genocide before it starts. Do you see the genesis of genocide 
in Gaza right now? Yes, I think that we are very close to a humanitarian catastrophe. We may be seeing ethnic cleansing as we speak, and that combined with the massive disproportionate uh, killing of civilians may become genocide. You also write that the urge to label all atrocious events as genocide tends to obfuscate reality rather than explain it. So th this urge, is that what we are seeing in these mass protests here in Europe and on university campuses in the United States, a, a rush to judge or label something before the crime has been committed? Yes, that's true. That's the other problem with um, with the term genocide. You know, this term was uh, uh, coined in the in the mid '40s and then became part of a UN resolution in 1948. And it's a very specific crime. And um, on the one hand, it is important to, as you cited me writing, it's important to warn about the potential of genocide before it happens, because after it happens, it's obviously too late. But at the same time, there's a tendency, because this is considered to be the crime of crimes, the worst crime one can imagine, uh, to label anything that is atrocious, that is terrible, that we object to uh, as genocide. And I think that tends to obfuscate things rather than to clarify them. I, I understand that the, the legal or the academic definition of genocide, I understand that those are important, but um, one could say or ask, does it matter? I mean, the legal definitions, they mean little when the images of human suffering on a tremendous scale tell us that seeing is believing. What do you say to that? I think it does matter. You know, I mean, in war, um, many wars, uh, civilians uh, are killed and there's a great amount of suffering. It's so important simply because we need to know if we are sliding toward genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, mm -hmm. or not. And showing those images on their own is not sufficient to make that determination. Do you think in our social media world that we live in right now, um, the, a news uh, um, clock that is on 24-7. Do we have those uh, qualities today? Well, no, obviously not. I mean, what we are seeing, you know, still going back to the war, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and now the war in Gaza, you, you find that people have short memories. They haven't mm. studied history and they are dependent a great deal on social media, which not only gives them only only tiny little segments of information, but often keeps them in a bubble of the kind of information that they want to hear. Mm -hmm. And that unfortunately doesn't help us know how to act in any given situation. I spoke yesterday with the author Nathan Thrall. He and the German-American author Deborah Feldman, they both put forth the observation that Germany's commitment to Israel's survival and security leaves no room for any criticism of Israel's government and its policies. In fact, in Germany, often criticism of the Israeli state is tantamount to anti-Semitism. What are your thoughts about that? Look, I mean, I, I grew up in Israel. Uh, I grew up su surrounded by Holocaust survivors. I became a German historian. I saw how Germany shifted 
uh, in the 1980s from um, generally denying any individual responsibility or even collective responsibility for the Holocaust to creating this memorial culture, which is very important. So from that perspective, and also as an Israeli, I can say I agree with what the chancellor says as far as uh, Israel's right, in fact, duty to defend itself and its citizens. That is not the question, and I think it's very nice that the Chancellor says that, but Germany is a very powerful country, a, a big player on the European scene, and defending yourself from atrocity, responding to atrocity, doesn't mean that you should do it yourself. And here, I think Germany could play an important role, first of all, in pointing out that Israel is, is engaging now in what probably looks like uh, war crimes. So that's, that's the, to me, a really important point. It's true that there is now a culture in Germany where it is very difficult to criticize Israel without being accused of anti-Semitism. I've mm -hmm. encountered that myself in Germany, in the United States. I think that's nonsense, of course. I mean, you should be able to criticize a country's policies without doubting its right to exist, which, of course, Israel has like any other country. We've seen some pro-Palestinian demonstrations, for example. They have been banned due to fears of anti-Jewish and pro-Islamist strains being given a public platform. Do you think that's the right approach? No, I think it's excessive. And, and there's also a tendency in Germany, not only in Germany, to, to associate uh, demonstrations against Israeli policies with the Arab or Muslim elements in society, which which actually ties in with all kind of prejudices in, in German society as in other European societies. There is a powerful right-wing neo-Nazi movement in Germany right now, and they're about as anti-Semitic as anybody can be. Mm. So in some ways, this focus on that part of society reflects prejudices in German society, which are... Uh, camouflaged by a sort of support for Israel. Uh, so no, I, I don't think it's the right approach. Of course, Germany and all other countries should uh, respond to anti-Semitism. Uh, anti-Semitism is a vile um, sentiment, uh, but not all criticism is anti-Semitic. Do you think that it's possible that there is too much focus or even a fetishization of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, possibly even, you know, how it pertains to genocide. Israel was created right after the Holocaust. So there is, uh, in Europe, in the United States, a, a particular attitude toward Israel, both a sensibility to its safety and sort of sensibility to what it does when it does something wrong. But Israel also uh, has presented itself always as the only democracy in the Middle East. And so if it wants to be part, and it was moving toward becoming part really of Europe, uh, it wants to be part of that universe, it has to be measured by different standards than the tyrannical regime of uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad or of the Iranian regime. We don't expect much of those regimes, but we do from Israel because it presents itself as such, and it should. I think it's it's the right thing. But then you have to be also willing to be subjected to a different set of standards and criteria as to the way you behave. Mr. Omar Botov, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us tonight. Very enlightening 
discussion. Thank you. We hope you come back. That interview is from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary, also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or would like to support this listener-funded program, Contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. Many, many thanks to a longtime supporter in Willits, California, for their donation this week. We will conclude with France 24, an edition of Perspective with Dutch citizen Dr. Lex Takenberg, the senior advisor on the question of Palestine at the Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development. He talks about the protection hospitals are supposed to receive under international law. He says there is no credible evidence that the hospitals in Gaza have been used as military headquarters for Hamas, and that the purpose of the Israeli attacks on their hospitals is to cause panic and, in effect, a forced displacement of one and a half million Palestinians. Then press reviews on the return of British politician David Cameron, just appointed Foreign Secretary by Prime Minister Sunak, and the Israeli attacks on Palestinian hospitals, France 24. It's time now for Perspective, and we're staying with our top story today, that is the Israeli army's operation this Wednesday, inside Gaza's largest hospital, the Al-Shifa Hospital, where over 2,000 people, uh, ill people, wounded civilians, uh, currently find themselves trapped. My guest today is Lex Takenberg, senior advisor on the question of Palestine at the Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development, which is a civil society organisation that seeks to help address the challenges faced by the Arab world. He was also formerly the chief ethics officer at UNRWA, which is the UN's Palestinian refugee agency. He joins us today from Amman, Jordan. Now, in the course of war, hospitals are protected under international law. But where does that leave Israel, legally speaking, if Hamas is, as Israel says, also the US says, using medical facilities as their military command centres? Indeed, hospitals should never be uh, attacked under any situation of armed conflict. They should be sort of the last safe haven available to a civilian population. This is the sixth war in the last 15 years. Uh, and in all the previous war and in the current uh, situation, uh, Israel has not been able to produce any credible evidence that medical facilities in the Gaza Strip are inappropriately used. Shifa Hospital, like any other hospitals, are public institutions, are open to the public, are open to uh, journalists, are open to anybody can scrutinize what is going on there. There has so far never been any credible allegation that hospitals have been inappropriately used in Gaza. And therefore, this is uh, a totally uh, inappropriate use of force, an escalation of use of force by the Israeli military. What it seems like uh, is that the ongoing uh, military operation in the Gaza Strip 
is beyond revenge and trying to take on uh, Hamas, an attempt to cause such panic and to put such pressure on the Gaza population, primarily in the north, but also in the south, to, to be forcibly displaced. Uh, we have seen massive displacement from the north to the south, instructed by the Israeli army repeatedly and repeatedly. And these bombings and attacks on hospitals, on other public infrastructure, on UN and other schools that serve as, uh, as temporary hostels, uh, emergency hostels, is just an attempt to sow panic uh, and put pressure on the population to move. By now, one and a half million Palestinians have been displaced, two-thirds of the Gaza population. And of course, Israel would say that uh, it's continuing with its intense uh, bombing campaign with these operations, including the latest operation in Al-Shifa Hospital, because Hamas militants are still holding some 240 Israeli and international citizens uh, in Gaza. Well, if the primary goal would be to release hostages, uh, we would expect a different military and political strategy, one that is aimed at, uh, indeed, serious negotiations, opportunities to provide an opportunity for hostages to be kept safe and then ultimately to be released. I mean, these bombardments will, will undoubtedly also harm uh, the hostages. And there have already been reports that a number of, of hostages, several dozens, apparently have been killed uh, as a result of the ongoing bombardment. So it seems much more to prevent, to indeed, as I mentioned earlier, this, this strategy of forced displacement and preventing refugees who have uh, internally displaced in Gaza uh, to uh, to ever come back to their uh, to their homes and and properties in in the north or in other parts of Gaza, and with the pressure in the south mounting, with starvation being used as an instrument of war, it's only a matter of time for the desperate uh, Palestinians in the south of the Strip to to sort of break through the border, for us to witness uh, another mass displacement. Uh, of Palestinians, as we have seen in 1948, as we have seen in 1967, and as we are uh, witnessing today. I would like to ask you what you think the best case scenario is for the some 1.4 million Palestinians who have, uh, in the past five and a half weeks, been forced from their homes. The best case scenario is an immediate cessation of all hostilities with uh, an opening of the border for humanitarian supplies to come in sufficiently and to all areas of the Strip. At the moment, UNRWA and other humanitarian agencies are only uh, allowed to distribute food and to make supplies available to Palestinians in the, in the southern part of Gaza, not, uh, not to the north. And uh, the permission of Palestinians to go back to their homes to the extent that homes still exist. Uh, refugees should be allowed immediately to to return to these homes. That's the only place. Winter is setting in. We had we had heavy rainfall. The temperatures are dropping quite dramatically. You know, they should be allowed to go back immediately. And once this current war between Israel and Hamas is over, what do you think concretely needs to be done to work towards peace? If indeed you believe that peace in the short to medium term is even a viable possibility. At the moment, we're sort of really focused on uh, getting the parties, you know, go back from the brink 
and avoid even a larger catastrophe, as I as I alluded to. Indeed, the events of 7 October and their aftermath are the biggest turning point in the question of Palestine uh, since 1948 and has profound implications for all concerned. For Israel, the question will come up, you know, Israel has sort of failed in 75 years to, to, to provide a safe haven to, to Jews. It will have to ask itself very fundamental questions as to the future and its relationship with Palestinians. For Palestinians, this represents another huge catastrophe, but at the same time, uh, a moment of renewed attention for the unresolved Palestinian question uh, for the international community, which, you know, where, where sort of the question of Palestine had fallen off the radar and the same for Arab states that were sort of engaging in normalization with Israel. This is also a major sort of turning point. Lex Tackenberg, uh, Senior Advisor on the question of Palestine at the Arab Renaissance for Democracy and Development in Amman. Thank you. Front pages today, is it, Dipti? The big surprise is the comeback kid, David Cameron, back from the wilderness to become Foreign Secretary. That's on the front page of The Times. Uh, it also comes uh, 13 years after David Cameron became a prime minister, and to quote the Daily Mirror, he unleashed an age of austerity. Critics have slammed Sunak's appointment of David Cameron as a desperate move, uh, much like the Scottish paper, The Daily Record, this tabloid here today, calling him the buffoon that brought you back Brexit, who's back uh, in politics. Same old Tory, uh, The Daily Record says on its front page. To our top story, the Israeli military carrying out those targeted operations, it says, in Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. Erin Agunke is here to uh, tell us what the papers are saying on that, Erin. Well, those uh, targeted operations, Stuart, come as the humanitarian situation at that hospital uh, complex worsens. Now, that's on the cover of uh, The Guardian today. There Palestinians dig mass graves uh, at Gaza Hospital, and then there's a big uh, spread on it. That's because health workers in Gaza say that the Palestinians trapped there have been forced to dig mass graves precisely because there are no means of keeping uh, the corpses from decomposing. Now, as some of the hospital's buildings have been bombed as well, patients, including, of course, babies that were on uh, incubators, have been dying because of energy shortages and insufficient supplies. Now, given this dire situation, the pressure uh, is growing on Israel. The UN warning that whether it's claims about Hamas using uh, that hospital complex to store weapons or fighters are true or not, it still does not absolve uh, the Israeli military from its obligation to protect civilian lives. Now, speaking of civilians, for Le Monde, uh, in today's edition of Le Monde, uh, the fate of civilians is leading to growing pressure on the International Criminal Court as well, not only on Israel. That's because uh, since October the 7th, numerous complaints have been filed with the ICC against both the Israeli government, uh, the Israeli army rather, and Hamas, uh, both of which have been accused of various uh, offenses in international law, war crimes, genocide, uh, incitement to genocide and crimes uh, against humanity. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, as Le Monde tells us today, Karim Khan, insists that when enough evidence is obtained by the court, court uh, to reach the threshold to obtain a conviction. He said he won't hesitate to act. But Le Monde does remind us of a rather important fact, which is that Israel is not signatory to the Rome Statute, which established the court. And that means that it has uh, no legal obligation to cooperate uh, with any investigations. That interview and press reviews were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as on YouTube at a channel called France 24 English. 
They are also available at most podcast sites. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.